0: This episode of the Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by Looking Glass Cyber Solutions. Looking Glass delivers unified threat protection against sophisticated cyber attacks to global enterprises and government agencies by operationalizing threat intelligence across its end-to-end portfolio. Check them out at lookingglasscyber.com. This is the Security Ledger podcast and I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast number 157.
1: We as defenders need to have a similar mindset that all of these aspects of the environment whether it's perimeter, internal network, applications, users, all of those aspects need to be part of our response.
0: Threat intelligence services are popular now in the information security field, but what does threat intelligence really mean? And more important, how can organizations on the receiving end of threat intelligence feeds make use of the information available to them? In our second segment this week, we're joined by Alan Thompson, the Chief Technology Officer at Looking Glass Cyber Solutions, to talk about it. But first, the Mirai botnet caught the world's attention back in 2016, It was the first high-profile Internet of Things botnet. Since then, however, attacks on Internet of Things devices have grown rapidly. Why? Well, for one thing, they're easy marks. Two decades ago, Microsoft's Windows operating system, Internet Explorer browser, and Office software were the primary targets of malicious hackers because they were widely used and widely known to be vulnerable to attack. But today, those platforms are a lot more secure than they used to be and boast protections against a wide range of common attacks. On the Internet of Things, however, it's different. Connected devices like home routers, IP-enabled cameras, and digital video recorders commonly run software or firmware that lacks even basic protections against common threats like buffer overflow attacks. That makes them easy prey for hackers looking to gain a foothold on a home or business network or interested in building a powerful botnet of infected devices to do their bidding. How bad is it on the Internet of Things? Well, up until now, it's been hard to say. Unlike Windows or Office, which were made and managed by a single company, there are thousands or even tens of thousands of device makers out there. Each is distributing its own device firmware, and up until now, nobody's ever undertaken the job of studying the software to figure out how secure it is. That changed last week when the Cyber Independent Test Lab released data from what it is calling the first longitudinal study of IoT device security. The results were not surprising, but they were surprisingly bad. The Cyber Independent in test lab study, surveyed firmware from 18 vendors, including companies like ASUS, D-Link. Linksys, Netgear, and Ubiquiti. In all, it looked at more than 6,000 versions of firmware, totaling close to 3 million binaries, created between 2003 and 2018. Time and again, firmware from popular manufacturers was found to have failed to implement even basic security features, even when researchers looked at the most recent versions of the firmware. The CITL researchers found no clear progress in any protection category over time. Researchers documented 299 positive changes in the firmware they studied over 15 years, but also documented 370 negative changes over the same period, incidents where the firmware got less secure. Looking across its entire data set, in fact, firmware security actually appeared to get worse over time, not better, according to Sarah Zetko, the chief scientist at the Cyber Independent Test Lab. In our first segment, Security Ledger, is airing an interview that I did with Sarah on the sidelines of the Black Hat briefings last week in Las Vegas. Sarah was presenting CITL's findings at an event sponsored by the Hewlett Foundation. I started out by asking her about one of the proposals she made, which was to create an agency akin to the Food and Drug Administration that manages software security. I started by asking Sarah if that wasn't the job of the Federal Trade Commission. Here's her answer. Really interested, interested in um, the idea yeah of the uh, FDA for software. I think that's an amazing concept. I know you're not yeah. proposing it, but... Well, it's not that
2: we're not proposing it, it's just we're not proposing it yet. We would like to do smaller-scale things that are achievable for us. Yes. If somebody was up for doing the FDA, we would get on board. You know, like, the if they were somebody who was in position to.
0: Know. So one question would be, isn't the FTC the FTS or software, right? Well, so. and that's
2: why the one person was asking me about the cases they're doing. They're yeah. trying to be that, like, on a onesie-twosie kind of basis. Right. It would be very cool if they started asking for nutritional labeling or something like that right. for these really fundamental safety features, um, just so that people could look and see, right. you know, is this junk food okay. Right. or is it healthy
0: you know the and it's like listening to you it's like the impression i get is that this is not really it's almost misleading to talk about this as security problems this is sort of just their yeah
2: most of them are the matter of a couple extra characters at build time that you just yeah. had to say dash whatever letter it is in that tool to turn right. on source
0: fortification and the picture that emerges is really sort of you know it's very slapdash, right like you're yeah. talking about like well patches are actually disabling security features it's a
2: bottom-up problem yeah. it, educators and computer science curricula don't talk about this yes and uh, organizations that make software don't talk to their pr- developers about about it. There's right. no organizational rules about you have to use these build flags or you have to do this post-build testing or anything right. like that. It's just like a bottom up every stage of the chain had a weird blind spot about these basic safety features. They've just been around for forever so they took them for granted and assumed they're there. But the reason why every car has a seatbelt is because there's a law and there's no seatbelt laws for software. Yes. So And the
0: car makers fought seatbelts for years.
2: Exactly. And these safety features have been around as long as those things yes, almost fact, I yeah. mean you know like as long in the life of software at any rate but without that regulatory push or you know transparency of some sort there's no reason for adoption you know the because they are pretty universally adopted in desktop software I think a lot of people assumed IOT was the same but IOT is really like a decade or so behind yeah. desktop software <laughs> yeah the but. reason why IOT botnets are a thing is because now there's enough of them and they they're worse than regular computers, so yeah. they're the obvious target. You know, it's not because somebody was like, ooh, IoT's trendy, I'm gonna make my next botnet out of that. It's right. just because it's easier.
0: And we I know we need to distinguish this stuff from the, the software that might be running on the router, which is different and may or may not be more secure. This is the this is the embedded firmware. Right. But I mean it would seem to be from what from your data that you know companies like Linksys, some companies like Nakia don't seem to have again just reading into your data a standard or a or a, a high bar that they're setting for security for the firmware that they're we literally see, shipping out on their devices we
2: see no evidence of that yeah. if if they did there would be some consistency in how their products scored you know the what it looks like is that it's totally random from one product to the next okay. that's why we see the scores diverging as vendors have more products rather than like, all trending upward or all right. staying the same which would
0: indicate some top down Movement to, w- to get all these products up to a certain level of Exactly. Right. It's It's sort of, is it random or is it?
2: It's pretty random looking. Yeah. You know, the...
0: Were you surprised?
2: Not really. I mean, maybe a little. We were surprised by all those zeros on I mean, the executable stack yeah, yeah, thing because yeah. that we thought they were better than. Right. But everything, like, so that was the only one where we were like, that has to be a bug on our end. We're going right. to double check. But right. everything else, it was like, oh... It's just as broken as I feared. (laughs) But knowing that it's really, really broken in a, like, it just has to be because I've heard so much terrible stuff about it versus having the data to back it up and knowing how it would be fixable is totally different.
0: So what's next? So now you've got the data. And also, what's the relationship with Consumer Reports and and how might this come out through them?
2: Well, so Consumer Reports... uh, we're trying to get them interested in doing uh, something on this topic. They have to have a winner to push because they're trying to tell people what to buy. So we have to have a winner first. <laughs> and So that's on us. This is America. <laughs>
0: no ties. Yeah.
2: Um, but once we have a winner in a product category, then I think we can get them to publish something. Okay. Um, the
0: What's next for you guys?
2: What we're trying to do is figure out um, how to get the funding so that we can write some nice buyer's guides for large organizations of different right. ilks so that they know why they should care about this and what right. questions they should ask right. and what looks like a good answer versus a bad one. Right.
0: And, and the buyers would be anyone from consumers to corporations?
2: Yeah, right now we're Targeting primarily corporations and government because they're the ones whose purchasing decisions vendors care about. Mm -hmm. Although, if you targeted a class of consumer like Comcast customers or something like that, where operating in bulk, they Mm -hmm. can make move a needle. Then Mm -hmm. that's of interest too.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Sarah Zatko. Sarah is the chief scientist at the Cyber Independent Test Lab. She was speaking about CITL's survey of IoT firmware security. You're listening to the Security Ledger podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Looking Glass Cyber Solutions. Looking Glass delivers unified threat protection against sophisticated cyber attacks to global enterprises and government agencies by operationalizing threat intelligence across its end to end portfolio. Check them out at lookingglasscyber.com. Up next, threat intelligence services have fast emerged as a critical tool in the tool belt of enterprise security teams. But what is threat intelligence, really? There are certainly plenty of security tools out there, and they're creating reams of security data. Is that intelligence or not? Moreover, if you can get your hands on reliable threat intelligence, how do you act on it in ways that will prevent future attacks and stiffen your organization's security posture? In our second segment, we invited someone into the Security Ledger studio who should know. Alan Thompson is the chief technology officer at Looking Glass Cyber, a threat intelligence firm. In this conversation, Alan and I talked about the challenges of doing security in a way that matches the speed and agility of malicious actors. We also talk about how organizations can benefit from increasing their use of deception technology to both divert and learn from would-be attackers in order to better understand how to defend their own IT assets.
1: I'm Alan Thompson. I'm the Chief Technology Officer at Looking Glass. My background is, is mostly in distributed systems and uh, networking in general. I've spent many years building uh, large-scale uh, systems, uh, both from a network management perspective as well as security. And, uh, one of the key challenges about cyber threat intelligence is oftentimes that, that there's so much data out there that can potentially be useful. But how do you decide what is the data that's relevant to my business? And building technology to be able to do that at scale uh, with efficacy and accuracy is a, a key technical challenge that I'm really excited about. Uh, Looking Glass has been around for many years now. We've really evolved uh, our understanding of the cybersecurity business and, and particularly around how cyber threat intelligence can really help inform, you know, security decisions. So, you know, we often talk about uh, risk or risk management uh, with our customers. And it really talks to how the information that Looking Glass is able to collect and aggregate and refine into data that ultimately informs risk decisions in a business. And, you know, as, as a CTO, Uh, My role at Looking Glass is really about all of the aspects of both data collection, data refinement, analysis of that data, and then ultimately uh, delivering what our customers need from an operational perspective in, in intelligence.
0: Okay. So threat intelligence, certainly it's a term that gets thrown around a lot these days. And there are a lot of different vendors out there that claim that they offer threat intelligence. Explain just a little bit what you mean and what Looking Glass mean when they talk about threat intelligence and maybe how it's different from just sort of threat data or security data, which companies certainly have plenty of.
1: Yeah, I think one of the key challenges with the industry as a whole is that just because you have a piece of, you know, an IP address or domain, potentially even some basic information about malware. These are all important, but ultimately without context and without understanding how all of this information that you're collecting relates to uh, either specific businesses that uh, processes that you have, or specific you know uh, vulnerabilities that you might have on those systems, then it's really not intelligence. And so, I think one of the, the the problems is that if there are so many people out there who, because they collect data, they then turn that into okay, we have some intelligence. Well, until you turn data into something that is actionable in your business and protecting your business, it really isn't intelligence.
0: Yeah, that stuff's kind of uh, necessary, but not sufficient, I guess, to uh, solve your problem. Exactly. Um, Right. We just had the Black Hat and DEF CON conferences out in Las Vegas, huge security shows, certainly very busy events, lots of different vendors there, lots of different speakers. Um, What what are your thoughts? I'd be interested in your thoughts on kind of, uh, as you look at the information security industry now. Um, how much it's grown. Where are areas where we see improvement? You know, Maybe we're doing a better job and areas where as an industry, uh, we need to do better, I guess, serve our customers better, do a better job of uh, delivering security.
1: I'll start with um, where I think we need to be doing better. <laughs> I, I, I generally think that um, there's a lot of emphasis on uh, the industry around automation and orchestration uh, and, and partly that's driven by a need mm-hmm. for organizations to to be much more agile in how they respond to threat. Your people who are threatening organizations, they are able to leverage toolkits and, and various software tools that they are exchanging with their their people in their dark uh, environments. Uh, so they're able to attack organizations much more easily because of the, the, the rich capabilities they have. Uh, we as an organization and a, as an industry... Providing capabilities for organizations to defend themselves, we need to be as agile and as sophisticated in that, in terms of how we integrate, how we orchestrate, and ultimately how more effective we are able to deliver that protection. So, mm-hmm. it, it can't be, uh, you know, something that takes months uh, to develop and deliver to uh, to our customers. We need to be able to detect and deliver capability to our customers very quickly and that needs to be integrated into their ecosystem. So standardization becomes really important. So uh, new standards such as STIX2 and TAXI2, COCOA and openc 2 which talk to orchestration, a variety of other standards in, in, in both how we collect information but also how we orchestrate will help organizations be more effective at integrating these capabilities.
0: The, the old adage of of course is that offense is much easier than defense right so cyber criminals have an easier job than cyber defenders yeah um, but I'm always impressed by how ruthlessly efficient cyber criminal organizations and I guess nation state as well but certainly cyber criminal organizations are in terms of abandoning strategies tools techniques that are no longer effective or even are no longer as effective and, and migrating to even marginally more effective profitable efficient, Platforms, tools, methodologies. I mean, it's, they're just very, very efficient at doing that.
1: Yeah, and, and and they also they also don't have any boundaries. So,
0: <laughs> oh yeah, that too.
1: <laughs> yeah. So so when when they when they look at an organization, they look at it as a whole, and they look to okay, what what's the weakest link? Where can I get into the environment and then use that to exploit that environment for ultimately right. where I'm trying to go? And and so they think about it as a complete battlefield, if you will, that is open to them to exploit however they uh, wish. We, as defenders, need to start thinking about uh, that in that context. So we need to start thinking like we are no longer a single product. We're no longer only deployed in a single place in that enterprise environment or that organization environment. So we need to be, have a similar mindset that all of these aspects of the environment, whether it's perimeter, internal network, applications, users, all of those aspects need to be part of our response and building a capability to be able to detect uh, what is going on whether it's you know internal or external you know those are key aspects that uh, i feel like the industry is really only starting to scratch the surface on And, you know, at Looking Glass, we're looking at it much more holistically because of that natural background we have in threat intelligence and how we've always looked at it as a much bigger part of response to threat is not just one specific aspect, but look at it much more broadly and then apply that to an organization as a whole.
0: So before we started recording, we were talking a lot about deception technologies as an, as an aspect of, of cyber defense. Talk a little bit about what you mean by that. Deception has always been, I guess, a tool in the tool belt for organizations, whether it's honeypots or, or other types of approaches. Talk about what you mean by deception and um, how you see it playing into uh, modern threat defense.
1: Uh, so I, I think one of the key aspects of deception is that it, it can be used for multiple purposes. And, w- and one of the first... Things that uh, we really uh, consider it is, is information gathering, which I think you know in the past, uh, technologies such as honeypots have been somewhat uh, useful for. The challenge is that you know it's fairly easy uh, to actually detect uh, the differences between, say, a static system that's set up as a honeypot versus a system that's actively being used for some business function, and so. The, the ability to gather information with technologies that are placed in your, your environment to gather information need to be more sophisticated, more dynamic. Uh, and so I think one of the things that we are seeing is that just because you have the ability to use deception for a gathering, it can't just be static and it can't just be a very basic, uh, you know, s- superficial deception because ultimately, it's especially the more sophisticated actors are able to actually detect that. Uh, they may even have profiles to what to look for that is typically used as a deception technique and then they avoid it or they know how to avoid it. So, information gathering using deception needs to increase in the, in terms of how it actually uh, gathers that information and, and the, the more realistic and uh, that it can become, uh, the, the more uh, value you get of the data. The second part of deception is oftentimes uh, how do you then use it to protect your organization? And it's not just about gathering information, it's about delaying or confusing what the adversary is seeing so that they uh, may take longer to achieve the next objective. So if they're interacting uh, with a server, are they getting responses that they expect? And if they are, uh, are they then going to perform you know, step B in a process or step C in a process? So the more that we can co- uh, dynamically interact uh, with adversarial behavior, the more that we can actually cause them to either expose uh, what they're doing and how they're doing it, but ultimately we can actually cause them to slow down in how quickly they can get to their their objective.
0: Right. I mean, one goal, obviously, in, in gathering that data is to use it or operationalize it, right? To feed it back into your own uh, defense and response capabilities, right?
1: Exactly. And 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 for example, you know, that's another uh, key aspect of when we think about it more holistically. The information that you gather from potentially one capability in either the network or a server or a client, that information on itself uh, is useful. But when you start to combine that with other uh, information, you are able to gather from other points in the network and other parts of the organization and then think about, well, okay, can I affect change? not just in the system that I, I see the adversary is on, but I can potentially change how they navigate to that point through the network or vice versa. If I'm seeing interactions at a network level, can I affect change on the endpoint in a more dynamic way? So the key point is that really treating that, that operational environment much more of a, a, as a orchestration, uh, orchestrated response across whatever point in the network or the clients or the servers you need to, it becomes much more comprehensive and sophisticated and therefore uh, less likely to be de- detected by the adversary, but also more likely to actually uh, completely o- overwhelm them with uh, opportunity to not really know what they're, they're expecting.
0: Okay, so you're the chief technology officer uh, at Looking Glass. Where are you and Looking Glass devoting your resources, in terms of you know looking into what's coming next, uh, whether it's feature development capabilities, um, you know th- threat evolution. Uh, what what should we be paying attention to?
1: So we have uh, multiple areas that we're researching. What one, one area is really looking at? Uh, how do we employ this uh, security fabric concept, or up to both detection as well as mitigation? So. Looking at ways to deploy in software only without requiring, you know, cumbersome or costly hardware capabilities to be able to be deployed, the ability to deploy detection across uh, the network. We're a firm believer of uh, open source technologies uh, as a as a, an important part of any product development. So uh, we're very encouraged by... Uh, some of the technologies, such as uh, OS Query, which is used for ability to query uh, endpoint state as well as other aspects on the endpoint and, and servers, uh, we're looking at uh, Zeek as a very valuable detection capability. Where you know the, it has a fairly active and very rich open community around uh, uh, using Zeek to script a, a behavioral heuristical type uh, detection. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're looking at taking that to a, an, an additional level, where we're now able to do uh, threat mitigation or, or threat response within that Zeek uh, scripting environment. So, so people who are familiar with uh, Zeek writing scripts to detect uh, things can now actually easily add to those scripts to block or or to uh, to do other aspects of uh, threat response.
0: Okay, and you mentioned the security fabric there. When I think security fabric, I'm often thinking of of kind of at the, at the hardware level, at the hardware layer, Um, you know, uh, chip vendors talk about, you know, security fabrics, but what, what do you mean by security fabric when you're, when you're using uh, that term?
1: So we really refer to a set of connected software capabilities that are deployed in the network uh, as well as endpoints and servers. So it's really a set of connected software functionality. And we've embraced uh, aspects uh, that are, were originally designed into SDN, software-defined networking, where you have the ability to define policy and be able to provision the network based on that those policies. So some of those principles of you know, centralized policy and control uh, with distributed capability to detect and control the network communications is a key part of that fabric. But it's all done at a, a software uh, level uh, so that it's more easily deployed in different environments, whether it's cloud, whether it's uh, virtualized uh, VMware, for example. These are all the different environments that this, you need to apply this, especially in organizations that have typically many you know much more hybrid cloud environments where they, they would embrace you know uh, public cloud uh, providers as well as internal uh, networks that they would like this capability.
0: We were talking about sort of the, the deception capabilities. I mean how do you see these types of capabilities fitting into security operations as they currently exist?
1: The, the ability to deploy uh, data gathering capability with deception is step one, where the, the alerting and the ability to detect what is going on feeds mm-hmm. into some of the operational tools that they already have. be able to program what those uh, systems are looking for is a key aspect that we need to embrace. So if everything was forwarded to a deception server, then ultimately the deception server would be overwhelmed. So how you selectively choose what goes to deception systems for further investigation if you will uh, mm-hmm. that is a, that is something that uh, we are empowering uh, with you know some of the capabilities i mentioned with regards to z
0: give kind of a um, a scenario you know what types of attack scenarios or threat scenarios is this particular capability particularly useful in
1: well I, an example might be that uh, an adversary is, is trying to uh, break into a server using SSH. Uh, so that assumes that they're already inside the enterprise. So if you were to just immediately block them because you say, okay, I've detected somebody who I know f- for certain is uh, an adversary and I want to get them out of the environment, then you can do that. You, and that is obviously the, the fallback. However, that may not actually show or give you a lot of information about what they're really looking for or what they're trying to exploit. And so uh, uh, an organization can redirect them, their SSH sessions to a a deception server that actually is a server and does look like a server that they would uh, otherwise log into provided that they had the credentials. So this assumes that they have credentials Mm -hmm. um, that have been stolen via some other means. So Mm -hmm. they log into the server. We then are able to, on that server, see what they're looking around for. They can, we can see what documents they're uh, looking in and kind of steer what they're doing without them necessarily knowing that uh, we're actually doing that. Uh, But to do that in a crude and very basic way, would be yeah. quickly quickly detectable and that and that's the key here that what we are really trying to do is operationalize a much more sophisticated deception capability to actually keep them engaged and learn really what they're trying to do and actually continue to interact in a way that ultimately gives us the advantage over what uh, rather than them
0: You know, a lot of organizations are really moving to relying a lot more on just end-to-end encryption to protect their data in transit and at rest and so on. That's all great, but of course it makes security monitoring uh, much more challenging. What does Looking Glass's uh, take on that particular development? How do you continue to play um, in these environments uh, where you've got end-to-end encryption enabled?
1: So there's a couple of aspects. Uh, one of the things is there, there's a lot of information you can ascertain from just observing uh, the end-to-end encryption being set up, the ability to identify certificate use in that communication, the ability to identify uh, misconfigured or, or deliberately misconfigured uh, certificates, the ability to identify expired certificates. Those are some of the things that you are still able to observe and, and alert on that may ultimately result in identifying a malicious activity in the network alone. So even though you might not have the end-to-end uh, keys, you can still do a lot in that, in that regard. Uh, another aspect is really you know, being able to uh, run detection and mitigation capabilities on endpoints and agents. Mm-hmm. And that's where uh, systems such as OS Query or the, the capability OS Query provides is very uh, useful. Uh, but that is insufficient in its own self. Uh, so, having a, a more comprehensive approach of combining the network and that endpoint capability really allows you to be able to respond to both detection on uh, on that end-to-end encryption, but also potentially uh, mitigate risk.
0: So, if our listeners are are tuning in, maybe they recognize that you know they need to be. Uh, using threat intelligence? Um, What's your advice for getting started, kind of starting on that journey for for them? Where should they, what do they need to do first? What's the basic blocking and tackling they need to have done before they can really make that investment?
1: You know, one-on-one is really start with what are your your primary concerns? Um, What are your main risks that you perceive to be on your business? And then look to what intelligence information or capabilities that you know, such a company looking at us can assist with. So if you're concerned about vulnerabilities on your, your public facing infrastructure, then look for intelligence providers and capabilities that would ultimately be able to support reducing the risk associated with those vulnerabilities or ultimately identify those vulnerabilities and ultimately remediate them. So it's really drive your use of intelligence based on your business priorities. No, I appreciate the opportunity. I I think uh, this has been a great chat. Thank you.
0: Alan Thompson, CTO, Chief Technology Officer at Looking Glass Cyber Solutions. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to the Security Ledger Podcast. This episode of the podcast has been sponsored by Looking Glass Cyber Solutions. Looking Glass delivers unified threat protection against sophisticated cyber attacks to global enterprises and government agencies by operationalizing threat intelligence across its end-to-end portfolio. Check them out at lookingglasscyber.com.